Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Nancy is a 38-year-old journalist who comes in to talk about her celiac disease. She tells you she's tried to strictly adhere to her gluten-free diet, but with her job, she's often traveling and has to eat out for her meals, and she hopes for the best. She gets inadvertent gluten exposure at least one or two times a month, and this usually causes some diarrhea and abdominal pain. But from time to time, she notes her brain feels foggy, and she has trouble concentrating. This can make it difficult to complete her work, especially if she has a deadline to meet. She wants to know if this is typically part of celiac disease, and is there anything she can do about it? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the Executive Editor at Dynamed. Good morning, Alan. Having me this morning. Absolutely. Well, celiac disease is um, an important part of our job, something that probably was less, uh, we were less aware of 10, 20 years ago. Um, and, and there seems to be uh, uh, great data and great information on celiac disease, um, but less clear information on non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And we have many people who fall in that category. Can you talk a little bit about those differences? Sure. Well, celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder. It's triggered by gluten, and it's characterized by several autoantibodies, including those against uh, tissue transglutaminase, or TTG, as well as anti-gliadin and anti-endometrial antibodies. In addition, those with celiac disease carry uh, the HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8 haplotypes. These patients are also at increased risk for other autoimmune diseases. Then there's another group of people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. They often have similar gastrointestinal symptoms as those with celiac disease, but they lack the autoantibodies, they don't have the increased rates of other autoimmune disorders, and they may not have uh, the HLA markers. So the phenotype is very similar in terms of how they react to gluten, but when you start doing serology, or other types of testing, that's where you see the differences. So the the other point that sometimes people ask about is the whole villus atrophy, which is a common uh, confirming aspect of celiac disease. Patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity can have villus atrophy. So you need the combination of both serology and the villus atrophy. Uh, we don't normally test for the gene, uh, but in general, you need the positive antibodies and the positive villus atrophy for a diagnosis of celiac disease, whereas non-gluten sensitivity, uh, you may not have, you may or may not have the villus atrophy, but you definitely won't have the serology. Okay. Now, so you're raising the question about how do we diagnose celiac disease? Patient comes in with um, bloating, diarrhea, following uh, certain meals. What should we do? So. If someone has symptoms that you think are typical for celiac disease, the initial testing is IgA antibodies against 
uh, TTG, tissue transglutaminase. In general, I always check a total IgA as well, since you want to make sure someone isn't IgA deficient. If they are, then they'll have falsely low uh, TTG uh, titers. If it's positive, then they need an endoscopy to obtain biopsies to check for villus atrophy. And it's important not to start a gluten-free diet until after the testing is complete, because if someone has not been exposed to gluten, then the test can be falsely negative. The symptoms that you would typically think about for prompting a workup for celiac disease would be chronic diarrhea, sometimes chronic constipation, flatulence, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, or bloating. In addition, though, uh, many patients will have what are called extraintestinal manifestations, and the presentation may be quite different. Iron deficiency anemia, dermatitis herpetiformis, delayed puberty or failure to thrive, amenorrhea, dental uh, enamel defects, and neurologic problems. And the neurologic problems surprise many people, but there's gluten-induced ataxia, there's certain seizure disorders that uh, occur in people with cel celiac disease that are where the seizures are triggered by exposure to gluten, uh, peripheral neuropathy, and neurocognitive impairment. And uh, any of these may also be ways of presenting. And finally, of course, some people are picked up just on routine screening because of uh, family history or things like that. All right, you raised the question of neurocognitive impairment. And there was a recent publication, and for full disclosure, Dr. Ehrlich is one of the authors on the paper. Can you talk about that impairment uh, in people with celiac? Sure. Uh, and just to complete the disclosure, uh, the paper was sponsored by an organization called Beyond Celiac, which is a patient advocacy group, and I'm the chair of that organization. In any event, neurocognitive impairment is what patients will call brain fog. And the symptoms of brain fog include transient mental confusion, uh, cognitive impairments to memory, attention, executive function, and processing speed. These symptoms have also been reported in patients who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So again, the symptoms between those two conditions are very similar. There are some other conditions where patients report similar symptoms. Patients with fibromyalgia will tell you they have fibro fog, or, and patients who are on chemotherapy sometimes get chemo fog. In any event, so we recently published the results of a survey looking into this, and it was individuals who had self-reported either celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh, they were recruited to participate in a survey that was titled Gluten Exposure and Brain Fog. And a total of 1,100 patients with celiac disease and 250 patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity participated. Of those who participated, 89% of those with celiac disease and 95% of those with non-celiac gluten sensitivity reported some type of neurocognitive impairment. Now, those high rates are not surprising because they're being recruited to a survey that mentions brain fog in the title, but it also tells you that this is not all that uncommon. The 1,100 uh, individuals represented about 5% of the, the people to whom a survey was sent. A 5% survey response rate is, is not uh, unusual. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing it's, it's very easy to find patients who have these symptoms. And in terms of what did they report, the most common finding was difficulty concentrating. About three-quarters of the people reported that. Forgetfulness grogginess, feelings of detachment, and mental confusion. I think most notable was 60% of those, uh, at least with celiac disease, 
reported these symptoms lasted for one to two days or longer, sometimes out to five days. So wow. this is this is a fairly significant symptom that I think many uh, clinicians who have patients with celiac disease don't bother asking about. I think you're right. I mean, that's that's rather impressive. Um, one to two days is, is quite... And, and what I was surprised about is that the folks with non-celiac gluten sensitivity also experience it. Absolutely. Um, all right, so Nancy's uh, got a job that requires her to eat risky meals. What what should we be telling her to do? So, first of all, I think the first thing is to acknowledge to her that her symptoms may very well be attributable to her celiac disease. On the other hand, you don't want to overlook another cause. So, you, you need to take a detailed history, make sure there's nothing else going on. But assuming that this is likely to be the case, a starting point is to keep a symptom diary and try and see what the correlation is between possible gluten exposures and symptoms. And people who have had inadvertent gluten exposure, I think the vast majority of the time, uh, have a strong clue as to where it might have occurred. In any event, uh, the neurocognitive effects do not have to be present every time there's a gluten exposure. But if the symptoms are present, they should be able to identify uh, a likely exposure at least the vast majority of the time. Unfortunately, there are no pharmaceutical options to help Nancy, and so strict adherence to the gluten-free diet is the best we can offer her. She should be referred to a dietitian if that hasn't helped, because the, there are challenges to the strict adherence to the gluten-free diet. And then a lot of this is behavioral, where she needs to have an awareness of if something important is about to be happening, making sure she doesn't take chances at that moment. Uh, where it can interfere with you know her functioning on the job, and again, that's not uh, really all that satisfying a way to counsel a patient, but it, it's the best that we can do for now. Yeah, there, there. Well, there are many other illnesses and diseases that we counsel on avoidance as the primary treatment. So uh, it, it's just harder when it comes to food. Alan, that this is quite remarkable, and uh, I'm glad we've had this discussion. Thanks so much. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. For patients with celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, ask about neurocognitive effects following gluten exposure to better understand the full spectrum of their illness. Join us next time when we discuss the role of hearing impairment on aging and cognitive and physical decline. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.